I'm Hillary. And I'm Sandra. Coming up on the podcast on this episode, we're going to talk to a guy who is a self-described sex addict. Now, the reason that's kind of interesting is because sex addiction isn't always recognized. Absolutely. And he talks about uh, the beginnings of what he calls a sexual addiction. We actually get into the dirty details of how his sexual addiction escalated. And it gets real. You're going to want to hear it. The Quick and the Dirty Podcast with Hillary Welch and Sandra Plagakis. So, Sandra, a little update on the moving in with the significant other. I know we talk about it a little lot, but it's terrifying. It's coming up, isn't it? Yeah. And I'm selling my entire life online and super bitter about it. You know, well, I've been actually, actually, I've seen some of your posts on social media and you just like put up random things every once in a while. Are things, are things not, you know, here's a, here's the, you know, a desk, here's a this, but do you, are you not selling it? No, I am. So I'm selling a lot of my furniture on Facebook Marketplace. So it shows up and uh, it's just so odd. This whole selling used goods. I feel really weird about it. Why? Because I'm like selling the couch I banged my boyfriend on. (laughs) Is that like a selling feature on it? Do you actually put that? I know. Really great. Very comfortable. (laughs) Perfect height. The third string, two feet in, is a little bit wonky. The spring. (laughs) Sorry, that was my fault. That was February 2018. (laughs) So is it Um, because it's personal stuff and you it's all those are all of your memories that you're just hawking? Uh, yeah, it's a little bit of that. And then also people are freaking weird online. Oh, they don't read the ads. It's the biggest pain in the ass, Sandra. I'm selling an Apple TV. Apple okay. TV is like a little box that allows you to watch Netflix and whatever. Right. And it says right in the ad, Apple TV with remote. You want to know how many messages I got that says, is this come with a remote? Oh, come on. Yeah. Come on. Really? <laughs> My banging couch, I listed that. (laughs) (laughs) And it says right in the title, mustard yellow retro style four-year-old couch. Okay, that's very descriptive. And what were the questions? How old Uh, is it? Back and forward, back and forward with this lady for like three days. Finally, she looks at the second picture and texts me back and says, oh, I just noticed the color. I thought it was beige. Oh, Christ's sake. (laughs) Christ's sake. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I. So, so your whole life now is just talking slow to morons. <laughs> Seriously. Is that what it is? And then there's like the transaction when they come over to pick it up, and you feel like you're dealing drugs. <laughs> and normally, I wouldn't have somebody come into my house because that's weird. I would meet somebody out there, but like, I'm not going to put my couch in in my SUV. Like, it's not going to happen. So, I have to invite these people into my home. Uh, years ago, I sold this this big retro lamp on Kijiji and I didn't have the smarts to, you know, bring it to a a third location. Mm -hmm. And I had this, this young couple like in my house and I was so uncomfortable because they were, who knows, right? You don't know who these people are. Mm -hmm. Is that the feeling you get that you might be being scammed or you might be in trouble? For sure. And then I Facebook stalk them. So when you sell on Facebook Marketplace, I always check their profile to see what kind of person they are before I invite them over to my house. Like I look to see if, are you into hunting? Do you, are you a butcher by trade? Like these are the things. <laughs> That's right. Are you a cowboy and do you hog tie things? Right, Those kinds right. of questions. Do you have right. any special skills I need to be concerned about? Right. It's so uh, weird. That, that is weird. So, I mean, not to get serious, but 
are you really concerned about your safety at times? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because as a woman, you need to be. Of course you do. It's unfortunate. I will admit that I will answer all of the women first. Because I I know that I'll be safer in that interaction. Not that women can't be bad, but physically, I'm like a bigger person. I, I could probably take you. Yeah, you'll you'll be. Yeah, I know exactly what you're saying. Me too. I would be more comfortable selling to a woman than to a guy, especially if I knew that they were picking it up, you know, and I was alone. So are you alone every time that these people come and pick up? Sometimes. Yeah. Which isn't it's not smart. I know I'm not the smartest. But hey, at least I'm not selling my body online. That that would be different. Because why? (laughs) Well, because then you would be alone or would you have your pimp? I don't understand. No, I just mean like uh, of all the stupid things I could do, I'm not doing that. Are you sure? (laughs) I think you could get some real money, Hillary. (laughs) You could, you wouldn't have to sell your furniture if you sold your body. It wouldn't matter anymore. You'd be rolling in it. Think about it. I'm just saying it's next level. If I were to sell my body online, it would be like the shampoo models where you get the bonus, like 25% more. I'd be worried if I sold my body online, someone would want change or something like really awful. And I'd be like, you might find it in my third role. Um... Hey, this is a body positive podcast, right? You do you, boo. <laughs> I always wonder about people who who sell sketchy things on like Craigslist. Like, remember when Craigslist was the thing in like the personal oh. ads? Oh, and then uh, yeah, oh yeah, and then they shut that down because it just got it became next level cre- like creepy, right? And then where's the line? Like, how personal an item can you sell online? Ah, uh, I've never seen anything like. Okay, first of all, let, let's be clear. What are you talking about? Because I think I know what you're talking about. But do you think that you think I know what you're talking about? Well, no. I mean, like, would you buy somebody's used mattress? No. Like, you're buying my banging couch, but would you buy my banging mattress? Okay, I thought we were talking about dildos. I'm sorry. I didn't know where we were going here. Mattress. And we're done. <laughs> no to both. So what is a sex addict? Most of us probably have an idea of what it is. And it's a term you've probably heard a lot in the last few years because of celebrity sex addicts. At least that's where I first heard the expression. Today on the Quick and the Dirty podcast, we are going to talk to a self-described sex addict who is also the host of the podcast called Pornified. Please welcome to the Quick and the Dirty, Chris Benish. Hello. Hi there. Thank you for having me. Hi, Chris. Uh, so I guess start off by telling us just a wee bit about who you are and why you want to tell your story. Well, I guess um, I'm a writer, uh, I once a journalist. Now I work in TV. Um, but throughout my 20s and 30s, I developed a very, very hypersexual um, well, appetite for sex. And um, it destroyed a lot of relationships, and so I sought out help, um, therapy. And I think now I'm at the stage where I can kind of voluntarily confess what I was going through and and kind of share that with other people who, who may be going through the same thing. So you started a podcast called Pornified. This is sort of your way of, uh, I guess, uh, telling your story? That's right, yeah. It starts out with... Uh, me revisiting a, a porn cinema um, where I spent a lot of time in my 20s and 30s. Um, 
not just in porn theaters, but engaging in risky sexual behavior with actual humans as well at the same time. And then I kind of take a look backwards and say, well, how did this all happen to me? Where, where did this come from? So, so it's kind of like um, a kind of mystery. It's set up like a mystery, even though through therapy, I know the, I know the, I know where it's going. Right. But, so when did you first realize that you had an addiction to sex? I think it really happened quite late. I mean, I was engaging in it. I was, you know, there were many days where I, I felt like I couldn't stop, but I didn't really define it as that. I just kind of thought as, well, I, that's just who I am. I'm, I'm just a, a guy with a, a pretty hefty appetite for any kind of sex whatsoever. And um, it wasn't until I lost uh, a few good relationships that I really started to be like, like I, I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to lose that relationship. So. Um, it all kind of came to a head and I found myself kind of desperate for uh, psychotherapy at one point in time. And through through that psychotherapy, I've kind of come to the realization that I was indeed, and probably, probably still am, um, a bit of a sex addict. Chris, um... <sighs> I, I I need to get the dirty details on this. <laughs> it, I mean, you know, you you say you're engaging in risky behavior, and I sort of started twenty in in your twenties and and continued into your thirties. And you say now you you even feel that you are uh, hypersexual. So uh, my question is this: When was the moment that you knew you were in big big trouble? And as a follow up question to that, what were you doing specifically to get there? Well, I guess. Um... Anything would go. I mean, I would, um, I was frequenting uh, tea girl bars and strip bars and cruising washrooms and visiting porn cinemas. And I had a girlfriend at the time. And I would. I'm sorry, what washrooms were you cruising? These were washrooms in the financial district. where um, some of the most um, straight men, straight-appearing men on the planet like to go and engage in risky sexual behavior with other men. Uh, Right around Bay Street, lots of men with wedding rings. Um, Yeah, uh, the entire underground of Toronto is, uh, is a labyrinth of, sexual cruising destination. So that would be, that was my main spot. How old were you when this sort of behavior began? I was 27. But, and then what happened? Like, why? Why did it all start all of a sudden that you were, you know, cruising the seedy underbelly of Toronto? Well, it gets into, uh, I think, a bit of, like there is, just to start off, there is a a bit of a debate as to whether or not sexual addiction exists in the first place. But I think what everyone, even whether or not you, you agree that the term sexual addiction actually exists or it's just an umbrella term for other things, everyone can agree that 
this compulsive sexual behavior is, is a way to distract from emotional pains that are going on inside of people. Now, I don't know about people like Harvey Weinstein, who claims he's a sex addict, when really I don't, I don't see in his, his childhood any, any signs of trauma that you could point to, to, to. I think he's just using it as an excuse, and he's actually giving sex addiction a bad name. But for me, it was right around that time period that my mother had died. And my father had died a few years earlier, and it kind of just brought up all this kind of sexual abuse and um, sexual discomfort that I experienced as a child. It, it just kind of all came to a head. And I think I, I, I had lost a girlfriend at that point in time um, to what was starting to be sexual, risky sexual um, behavior. Um, I was cheating on her uh, with multiple people, and it all just kind of worked together to be this this way for me to escape things. I think is it an escape or isn't it an exploration of feelings based on that trauma you had? I think it's a bit of both, uh, for sure. Because um, I mean, there were moments where it felt like. After I experienced, after I went through an experience, I would feel shame, and then other times, I would feel pride. Like, wow, I managed to do that. Did you feel like you were living a double life? Because, like you said, you had a, you were juggling a girlfriend on on one side, and you were juggling uh, an, a sexual addiction on the other, and those two things obviously had to be kept very, very separate. How did she find out? that you were behaving this way on the side? Did she, did she catch you red-handed? No, she never found out. Oh, she never? Oh, I, I, was, I, I was under the impression that she left you because of the cheating or the relationship ended because of the cheating. No, she ended up leaving me because I kept on breaking up with her because every time I, I didn't want to cheat on her, so I would break up with her ah, three or four times right. a year in order to cheat on her. And to absolve yourself of guilt. Yeah, I mean, the, it worked differently with different relationships. There, there were definitely relationships I cheated on, but I never, I never actually felt that responsible for it because, in the long term, I didn't see it as a long term relationship anyway. Maybe, right. maybe my partner did at the time, but I, I, I certainly didn't. So I, I kind of let myself off the hook all the time, thinking, well, it's not like we're we're going to stay together forever anyway. Yeah. Did you, did, were you like engaging in this behavior every single day or did you have little spurts of this sexual or this hypersexuality? It's both. Was it every day? There were, spurts, there were spurts that would last months and it would be every day. And then it wouldn't take place. I, I, I wouldn't engage in this activity again for maybe a month and then it would. And there, there was lots of attempts for me to control, control it. I would take a, I would I would consciously take a month off of doing any kind of behavior, and then it would just be like an itch that I. All it would take is one argument with um, a sexual partner, and I'd be. I'd be back at it. 
Was it generally conflict that, like, when you think about other addictions and people who fall back into them, there's usually something that spurs that. Was it uh, conflict that uh, spurred you to fall off the wagon, so to speak? Or what was it that sort of turned you down that path again? Uh, conflict, for sure. Also, any smothering aspect that I would receive from a partner. So, and, and I was quite sensitive to this mothering aspect. I did, I did not want to be held down in any way. So even the slightest thing like, hey, do you want to come and have drinks with my friends tonight would be like, ah, stop smothering me. So you didn't want to be in a relationship. <laughs> Basically. I, I, I think I was, I was, I wasn't prepared to be in a relationship. I wasn't prepared to give or receive real intimacy at that point in time. You know, uh, at the risk of sounding like a complete idiot, Chris, and I'm, I'm certainly okay with risking that, uh, I, would, uh, I would say that there are some people who would be listening to this right now that will say uh, that they don't believe that this is a real addiction, and you alluded to that earlier. And then there are others who would say, it just sounds like you're horny. I mean, how can you differentiate between having high testosterone and having um, a compulsion for sex, which is, you know, normal and human, obviously, to crossing that line? Well, how do you know you've crossed that line? I think I knew, well, it happened in stages. There was definitely the horny aspect um, that that made up for a majority of it in, in my 20s and early 30s. And then it was right around 34, 35, I would say, that it started to have where I could perceive the negative consequences, where things that I actually wanted were now being destroyed. And, but I was still doing it. And also, it started to lose its overall satisfaction level. So, and, and one thing I have to say about this is that there was a lot of coinciding with other types of addiction. Like, I did a, a stint with amphetamine for a while, and I pursued alcohol for a while. So there was like, there, there, there were, it was easy to start looking seeing after a while, it was easy to start seeing that this is just kind of like the alcohol. I'm just trying to shut my brain off. Or there was also video games that, you know, I would find myself playing for 12 hours a night. So if, if, if it wasn't video games, then it, if it wasn't sex, sex was the, the primary thing. And then I really feel like things like alcohol, and this is going to sound bizarre but and insane, but I really found that things like alcohol and video games actually helped curb my sex addiction because I could concentrate on something else addictively or compulsively um, for a long enough time that it would kind of just drown out this need to go and explore sexually. Yeah, it sounds like you were you were finding everything and anything you could just to distract yourself from your reality. 
Absolutely. And I think that's the biggest thing in this age now that we're living in, in mindfulness. It's so easy to go, oh, that's just, you're just distracting yourself. It's so easy to, to identify because, I mean, just as a society, we've, we've grown so much more aware of what we're doing to ourselves, right? Fair With enough. Our phones and everything that we're doing. So, In terms of addictions, though, you got to see, you got to admit sex being a sex addict, probably not the worst. <laughs> no, no, it's uh, like you, I mean, you, you've got to find the humor in this, right? For sure. But there are myths surrounding sex addiction. Like we, we all enjoy it or um, like, of course there is an, there is an enjoyment. Sex, sex is enjoyable. Um, but when you start using it to the degree that you don't enjoy it, it's kind of, it becomes kind of like alcohol that way where, yeah, it's, it's it's fun to to to, to get hammered, but did, is it fun to get hammered every night, right? And did you find that your behavior was escalating to get that same sense of high? Like you hear about people who use addictive drugs, always trying to chase that next big high, that bigger high because it loses it loses its glow. Um, how did your behavior begin to escalate? Um, I found myself taking taxis home from bars where maybe it didn't work out with um, hitting on women that night. And even though I had all the money in the world to pay for the taxi, I would just be like, hey, I don't have any money on you. Would you accept a blowjob instead? And it was just like, that's how... That, that's pretty seedy stuff, right? That's pretty seedy stuff. Yeah. <laughs> was it more the challenge? But it, but it was like, but it was like, it was, it was all working into this, uh, this fantasy that it was just like, yeah, I want to do that. So was it a challenge that you were sort of getting off on, or was it actually the sex? I think it was partially the challenge for sure, because honestly, at the, whenever I achieved success, there was. There was shame, and, and, and it wasn't like I was going to my friends and saying, hey, guess what I did last night? I right. Mean, there were a few friends that I could say that to. But... Um, you know, I, I, in researching sexual addiction and hypersexuality and all of those things, it's uh, I, I don't see that it's been recognized by any... Um, governing psychiatric uh, association in Canada or the United States. And I asked you ahead, ahead of this podcast, you, you don't think, you know that you say it isn't either. Well, there is um, a group called the Society for Advancement of Sexual Health, SASH. Yeah. And, and they, they recognize it as a disorder? No, they don't recognize sexual, sexual addiction. They, they recognize hypersexual disorder. Oh, I see. Okay. So, you know, do you when I, when I think because I'll, I'll be honest with you, the first time I heard about sexual addiction was uh, David Duchovny. Do you remember okay. him? Yeah. Okay. Years ago, he was married to Taya Leone and uh, to uh, you know an actor and actress in Hollywood married to each other, seemingly a great couple. And then he they they got a divorce or they were getting a divorce, and then he came out as a sex addict because it turns out he'd had multiple affairs. And the, my gut was like. You piece of shit cop cop out. You cheat on your wife and all of a sudden you have a problem. 
And you must get that a lot, Chris. You must have a lot of people who've heard your story saying, well, you're, you've ruined your relationship, so that's, that's your way to save grace, to make it like you have an addiction when, in fact, you're just a bad person. Do you feel that way? Well, no. Or have you heard I, that I, from people? I, I, I feel that way about certain sex, uh, self-defined sex addicts, like having brought up uh, Harvey Weinstein earlier. Right. Like, you know, there's... There is an author out there, David Lay, PhD. Um, I think he's in New Mexico. He wrote a book called The Myth of Sexual Addiction. And what he said is that it's just a way for powerful men who get caught to, it's just an excuse. Exactly. Now, that's one of the things that I think a lot of people just assume about anyone who, any male anyways, who comes forward with sex addiction is that they were a predator. And I just don't, like, I actually give kudos to to Kovny for coming out voluntarily and admitting to it and seeking help without having to be caught, so to speak, in the public eye. He outed himself. But outing yourself, does that excuse the behavior? Like, we have people in our society who are alcoholics, but if they drive drunk, they're still criminals. Yeah, but they have to get caught driving drunk before they'll admit it. So for someone to actually come forward risks a lot of public perception. When they could have, like, hit it, they could have sought help privately. But to actually come out and say, listen, I, I acknowledge that I have a bit of a problem here. And it's not just that. I think uh, what Duchovny did um, was also alcohol therapy because they were, they were hand in hand for, for him. And, and I feel quite similar. Like, whatever it is that we were running from, the distraction, and I could only imagine, I don't really know Duchovny's backstory, but it's probably just him not dealing with his pain properly, right? And boo-hoo, right. there's a man who can't, <laughs> you know. I understand that, like, there's no sympathy for the devil here, but. Well, yeah, no, absolutely. And as as a woman, my, my instinct is to side with Taya Leone and think, what a shithead. He's been cheating on you, and now he's saying that he's a sex addict to get out of it. That's yeah, that's how I felt as a as a card carrying yeah, like, member of the sisterhood. He wants to be the victim, right? Yeah, but there's also women who've come forward and claimed that they were sex addicts. So, well, yeah. that's a whole other thing entirely. Now, most sex addicts, uh, by definition, anyway, are men. Uh, in terms, in, in from what I've read, anyway, and there aren't a lot of female sex addicts out there. At least not, in, you know, in terms of the ratio. Uh, what? Or maybe uh, they're just not admitting it. Or maybe they're just not fair admitting enough. it. Yeah, that's fair enough, too. Right. Uh, why do you suppose, though, more, more sex addicts are men? Why do I suppose there are more sex addicts than men? Um, that, that are men. That are men. I'm sorry if I phrased that wrong. I, I don't really want to do this argument for them, but I think there is truth to be said in the way it was all culturally imprinted upon us. Things are changing now, and I think it's changing for the best. But we can't just, you know, say that we all didn't have a hand in, you know, 
for instance, the genocide of, of indigenous people, you know, like the past exists in the, the 60s, the 50s, the 70s. Like so you think we're where... like a victim of the patriarchy and that uh, being sexual is, is manly? Well, there's plenty of um, people from, you know, the LGBTQ community that I think could be defined as hypersexuals or hypersexual disorder or like wanting to, to screw around a lot and not have any consequences for it is I don't think it's just a male thing. No, that's uh, that's my perfect world. Chris, I got to ask you, you know, when you talk about addiction, you, you've made the comparison between alcoholism, drug addiction and, you know, sexual addiction. The difference between those three things are pretty obvious to me in that uh, you you can live a life without having drugs. You can live a life uh, by not having alcohol. You would abstain from those things if you are an addict. How can you be a sex addict but still go on in life and have sex? Because I can't imagine you would abstain from sex once you'd been, you know, defined as a sex addict. That must be horrible and difficult. Well, I I don't abstain from it. I just learned. well, that's what I'm saying is that yeah. you're not abstaining so, from it. You can abstain from the other things to free yourself of that addiction, but you can't for sex for the most part anyway. Yeah. So, what does the the treatment program sort of look like if you are well, having? I, a... I I've never taken uh, sex addiction therapy. I don't really. I, I guess that's the thing is like, do I define myself as a sex addict? Yes and no. It's the sex addiction is an offshoot of the other reasons why I'm trying to distract myself. Why I've wanted to distract myself from other pain and other trauma. But really, what I'm in is psychotherapy, and it's trauma-based psychotherapy. Right. So that's so, that's the umbrella, basically, of what you're under. Well, people use any critics of the term sexual addiction, like sexual addiction doesn't actually exist. They believe that sexual addiction is an umbrella term for a bunch of other problems. Ah. So it's behavior to act out other emotional issues. Exactly. So in a sense, anyone who's coming forward, like your cousin and saying, I've got a sexual addiction, of course, like maybe he, maybe he bought into the wrong, um, the wrong terminology, but it doesn't get rid of the fact that he identifies that he has a problem and he has to come to the, he has to get to the root of it. Mm -hmm. So whatever therapy program that he's going through is up, up to someone like him. But for me, I I didn't want to stop having sex. Right. So how do you make sure your relationships now are healthier? Well, it's by reframing it and, you know, because sex addicts can actually exist in a monogamous relationship, but what they do is they just constantly, constantly ask for sex from their partner, or they constantly want to push the boundaries of that sex with their partner. Like, that's another version of sex addiction. And sex addiction can also, like, be non-sexual in the, in the sense that there's plenty of people who have love addictions. They always need to be in love, right? For sure. So if you kind of look at it as love addiction, 
like with a sexual element, just for a second, your therapy would be like, well, what's your problem? You probably go to a, a codependent anonymous twelve-step um, program, start to learn that you're codependent rather than because you're just dependent on always feeling that love emotion, that love. So once you recognize that you're 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 a codependent, a love codependent, you can start taking it back a little bit. You can start redefining what you want from your relationship. And so for me, I'm in a in a, a pretty healthy monogamous relationship right now with an incredible woman who's like the best thing that ever happened to me. She's was tolerant of my past because I admitted it. Yeah, I was wondering, did you are you open with her about all of the things that you've done? Absolutely. To the pleasiest detail. <laughs> she knows all of it. <laughs> so you've talked about that must the truth brings people closer. Yes? Oh yeah. And I, I and I would even say that at certain points in time, depending on the mood and the night, it's a bit of a turn on as well. Really? It doesn't cause insecurities? Like you'd have to be a really secure human being to be with somebody who is openly or has openly struggled with hypersexuality. Uh to be a partner of someone? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah I, I'd be insecure because I think you were really good at sex. <laughs> Maybe well, I wasn't really up to snuff, down, you know what I'm saying? That really, that really comes down to practice. If she's insecure that I'm really good at sex, then all she has to do is have sex with me and find out how good I'm at sex, right? Like, That's true, but you've obviously had way more practice than most people. But beyond Absolutely. that, like, wondering if you, you can satisfy somebody for a long term. No, for sure, and I, I think that probably does still uh, eat away at her a little bit, but I, I can only do my best to reassure that this, this is like a process and I'm in, I'm into her. So, and that's it. Like years and years and years ago, I think it was on Oprah. I saw Gene Simmons from uh, Kiss. Uh, you know, the guy with the tongue. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. I know him very well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Not as intimately as she wishes. <laughs> that's but, right. Yeah. Say no more, Chris. I know who you're talking about. Yes. He was on, I think it was Oprah, it was some talk show, and claiming that he was well over a thousand. Uh, yeah. Right? And I remember thinking back then, like, that's pretty low for a guy <laughs> that's been around that long and that famous and with that time. And that kind of <laughs> access. Like, let's be honest, he has all the yeah. access in the world. He didn't have to work at anything. No. And I, I was actually at that point in time, this is before I realized, fully realized that I have a, a, a bit of a problem with it. I was like, I'm going to beat his numbers. <laughs> that, that, that was your goal to beat his numbers? Yeah. So you're more you? sexually competitive? <laughs> I just want to know if he beat the numbers. Hold on, Hillary. Chris, did you beat the number? No, I'm like two thirds of what he ever achieved. <laughs> wow, that's... Uh... Wow, really? That's yeah. um, that's if, uh, if the numbers are still stand around, a, yeah, at twelve hundred, yeah. Well, I don't feel like a hoe anymore. 
but yeah, it was <laughs> it was competitive for me at that time. But the competitiveness was all part of this life I was leading. I mean, I was in the arts. I was yeah in theater. I was uh, a part-time photographer. It was all in with the whole thing. I, I felt like I was supposed to be having sex nonstop. Right? It was supposed to be a part of the entire experience. How right. did How you do... have time for anything else? Yeah. <laughs> like, this um, was sucking up a good part of your day. Yeah. Yeah, it was. At times, it was. I mean, I remember, um, you know, having two anonymous encounters during the day and then meeting, uh, like, just a, um, a short-term girlfriend in the evening. And that was probably... Like, I had had sex with more people all at once before, but I had never had three separate sexual encounters in one day before. So it was a new milestone when I achieved that. And, yeah, it was just, I think think anyone with a little bit of drive, they learn how to multitask, right? I don't understand how you were so good at seduction. Because, you know, they say that women hold the keys to the sexual kingdom, right? So you were hustling out there. Uh, You know, I I don't know any man who has had such an easy time having sex. How were you able to, like, your turnaround was quick. You'd meet them and have sex that day, obviously. It's not like you were... were, Or at the club, yeah. Or at the, well, I guess at the club is a different story, right? (laughs) Yeah. That's right. Yeah, I mean... I was pretty outgoing. Um, I was a good dancer. <laughs> and also, with a lot of these people, I was telling them right up front, I'm a sex addict. Or, or Wow, and that, and that was the deal, uh, that, that closed the deal for you? Saying or you were a sex addict? And, and, and I got to say, like, back in the late 90s, early 2000s, there, there were certain people who, if you, certain women, certain men, certain gay men and certain women who, if you just said I'm bisexual, they even saw that as a challenge and they just wanted you more. Did you have any uh, scary run-ins with disease? Like any any um, scary moments where you were concerned? Uh, a few times, but it all turned out negative. So. You're, you're a very lucky man. Do you ever th- yeah, I've, I've say that, that to yourself? Many times because so many times it was unprotected. It was so risky. And it, and it really all does come back to, like, the one thing I do want to say about this whole thing is it really all does come back to the earlier trauma. The whole reason that I was doing all this was, and it's, it's classic uh, textbook um, adult survivors of trauma business. And if you look at any, um, if you look at trauma, this is what we do. We engage in in the riskiest sexual behavior, risky behavior of any sort. Now, before we wrap, I want one really good story about a time you met someone and maybe something that uh, you are uh, proud of, if you want, or um, uh, maybe a little embarrassed of whatever you want. A story of meeting somebody like something really juicy. Um, okay. Like an experience that somebody might find surprising. 
Yes, I can hear you going through the Rolodex in your brain, Chris. Take your, take all the time you need. <laughs> Either one. Um, I think coming home from the bar one night, I was living down on Queen Street uh, in Toronto. And to get from College Street, which was a heavy bar uh, street back yeah. then, I'd have to pass through Trinity Bellwoods Park, which now is pretty lousy with hipsters, and you can't, you can't, you can't do what you used to be able to do, um, which is cruise at night. And there was this little patch of trees that you always knew there was someone doing something in. And that night I went in, and I was just hungry for anything. Um, and I found a guy that I think at the moment he was wanting to to give rather than receive but I was more in a giving than a receiving mode at that moment and so getting down on my knees and taking him into my mouth Suddenly, there's a couple other guys standing around watching, and I invited all of them over. There was four guys standing around me, all waiting for their turn, and it was a thrill. It really was a thrill. Uh, for them, too, I'm sure. It sounds messy. <laughs> it it does sound messy. <laughs> it was. Thank you for confirming, Chris. Now, when you look back on this memory, are you looking back on it fondly or with regret? I do not regret it. I mean, there's only so much time in life, right? And (laughs) I'm glad that I kind of got a huge chunk of exploration out of my way because I don't have I don't really have that many questions about myself at this point in time. The I don't have I don't have full answers, but I don't have like the I don't have fears. I don't have I don't have phobias. I don't have any I don't feel like I discriminate against anything. This current uh age we're in of sexual fluidity it's like long overdue, as far as I'm concerned. You're here, um, yeah. So, I, I don't know. I, I feel like, for myself anyways, I was just exploring things and, 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 and becoming ahead of the game rather than being, you know, some guy that was waiting for culture to change so that they could feel comfortable. So then you started a podcast called Pornified. Mm-hmm. So, so this is basically your way of exploring all of the things that happened to you. And if I wanted to hear the podcast, it is available on iTunes and the usual places where you can get a podcast. Uh, right now, only a Podbean. All right, great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Chris. <laughs> Thanks for having me. This episode is over, but the conversation doesn't have to be. Follow Hillary and Sandra on social. Instagram at Hillary on Air at Sandra Kiss1053. Twitter at Hillary Welch at Sandra Kiss1053. And on Facebook at Quick and Dirty Podcast. 
Got a question? Email Hillary and Sandra, thequickandthedirty at gmail.com. Don't forget, you can download the podcast each week to your mobile device to listen offline. Find The Quick and the Dirty on FrequencyPodcastNetwork.com, iTunes, or wherever you download your podcasts.